And so instead of having working acceleration from a, you know, a static two point, which is pretty normal for a lot of people is we'll have our athletes either doing some sort of movement that precedes our acceleration. And so the, the ways that we try to contextualize it to a sport is one will have that the preceding movement and then we always try to have that athlete when they go from that jog or say a shuffle or a back pedal or a walk whatever it may be into the acceleration to have it be initiated by them by a stimulus so whether it be another athlete whether it be some sort of a cue from the coach but we want them to you know, have that action be initiated by some sort of perception and stimulus that is relevant to that athlete. That was Michael Zwiefel from Building Better Athletes Performance, talking about building game-specific speed and reactivity in his athletic populations. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The KBox and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 84 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I am your host, Joel Smith, and we have back on the show Michael Zwiefel, owner of Building Better Athletes Performance Center in Dubuque, Iowa. Uh, Michael was a key contributor to the incredibly popular and incredibly relevant, uh, and I say relevant in context of, I mean, every episode is relevant, uh, but in context, I think of a lot of things that are happening in the uh, quote-unquote uh, SAQ, speed agility get your kid quicker, uh, that whole paradigm that, that seems to have swept our industry for some time. Uh, and, and he was on that podcast with him, Sean Mishka and Scott Salwasser on uh, agility, perception, and sport movement. And one of the main takeaways there was anytime you decouple the movement from the technique, uh, you ain't doing much. And so uh, that podcast itself, it, it it drew up so many questions and ideas in me. And Michael's such a bright mind. He's not only one of the most well-studied individuals on methods of improving athletic speed, jumping, and overall power, uh, but he's also one of the key contributors to the field in transferable training methods, just as was mentioned in the intro, how to build specific reactivity. You can see he regularly contributes what he's doing in terms of like Twitter and Instagram, his accounts there, uh, what he's doing with his athletes in terms of 
uh, making them better decision makers, better perceivers, better reactors. Uh, himself as an athlete, he was the all-time NCAA leading receiver with 463 receptions in his playing days uh, in college and has gone on to found a successful performance center where he is at now. So uh, as we've discussed on past episodes, great speed and strength uh, doesn't win games if athletes cannot react properly to it. And so uh, Michael is continually pushing the envelope. Again, uh, his work drew so many questions on my own end. So I really wanted to follow up to that last roundtable that we did in terms of uh, some more applicable methods, some examples. How does he do the warm up? How do we approach linear speed? And, and what role does that play in transferring over to game speed? What are some ways to train that transitional speed? And, and what, what ways are, is Michael setting that up? to get the best out of his athletes and preparing them for sport and the different movements and the different linking of movements that they're going to need there. Uh, we talked a little bit about just the topic of agility, learning environments, uh, building reactive warmups, which was really cool. And you can see some stuff there in the show notes as well. If you're just listening to this on your phone or something that is not your computer where you don't have the screen in front of you uh, with the Just Fly Sports page, check the show notes out. Michael dropped some really uh, interesting and relevant videos on exactly what he's doing with his athletes that I think you should definitely take a look at in light of this episode. So really excited to have Michael on the show. He's one of the, again, I think he's under 30, uh, Michael. I'm sorry if you're not, but I almost feel like the these uh, coaches under 30 that are just crushing in their field, I always love chatting with them and just seeing what they're doing, and they're definitely making the sport coaching world a better place. So if you are interested in team sport, ag- agility, at all actually even even if you're a track coach you know i there's things that like i think about like uh, high jump coaching ideas and concepts in light of uh, perception and technique and the coupling of those things and it makes a lot of sense regardless of what sport you coach i think it's such relevant uh, information uh, just this whole field of perception and technique and the link between the two so uh let's get on to episode 84 of the just fly performance podcast michael welcome to the show thanks for being here today Thanks for having me, Joe. Yeah, so it's awesome to have you back. I mean, man, I, I love that uh, little episode we did on agility, change of direction, sport movement with uh, you, Scott, and Sean. And and uh, I think people who listen to that probably have a decent idea of who you are, a little bit about your background. But just for uh, those people who might not have caught it, aren't familiar with you, uh, what's your background as an athlete and now coach? Yeah, so I'll keep it short and sweet, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm currently the owner of Building Better Athletes. Um, some people might know it as BBA performance on kind of social media, but I've been doing this for now, we're, we're, you know, five years going on almost five, a little bit over five years now. So running, you know, athletes from middle school, high school, college, you know, a small handful of professional um, adults, little nuggets like second, third graders. So basically every day I see every make and model of athlete you can think of. Um, prior to that, I actually coached college football for a year. Um, and before that, I played professionally football over in Europe for a year. Um, prior to that, I had a chance with the, uh, the, I was in the Green Bay Packers, uh, summer camp before they, they decide there's not much space for a, you know, six foot one, eight, five hundred, you know, <laughs> white receiver. So I got cut from them. And then, uh, uh, but that's basically by trade, you know, high school, I like, I did track basketball, football. Um, so a little bit of everything. Hey, that's, that's cool, man. Uh, so in, in terms of, uh, reaching that space between, well, athlete and then where you are now, who are some of your biggest mentors and, uh, what were some of the big schools of thought that have impacted you and formulated your current training methodology? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, th- there's a lot of them. 
Uh, I did my internship under Kale Dietz at the University of Minnesota. Also up there was Sarah Wiley. So, you know, those two have been a huge impact. Um, they, they do some great work up there. Um, you know, going way back when I was in high school and even middle school, back to the early ages of the, the internet, I would get onto uh, um, the long duration isometrics by Jay Schroeder, DB Hammer, some of those old threads, the super train thread. Um, so I've been impacted by a lot of different, you know, uh, areas. I guess where I'm different from maybe some traditional strength coaches is I've always been kind of like you, Joel, interested in, in speed and jumping. That's been my main goal. It's, you know, I was never, you know, not like a weight room warrior or not have a huge background in, say, West Side or 531 or powerlifting or anything like that. But my, my always, my only objective was to run fast and jump high. And so those backgrounds of Charlie Francis, um, backgrounds of, you know, speed, uh, you know, track coaches, of jumping coaches, if, those are really what I kind of got into it for and who have kind of molded me into what I am today. Well, hey, that's that's awesome, man. Yeah, the, the sprint jump combo. I, I think you between those two things, between gait and then that asymmetrical jumping and then those two skills, man, you can get so much. And yeah, it's always good to talk with someone who's into that type of stuff. Um, which I think is most strength coaches, but but where that drives the ship, you know. Uh, and uh, I was going to say too, before we get into the main questions, uh, you mentioned ISOs. I'm just interested in that stuff these days. I mean, I talk to as many people as I can about it. And are you still using any any shade of the long ter- long duration ISOs or ISO, the the lunges and those types of things in your programs? Yeah, absolutely. We we use those um, shorter duration ones, twenty set twenty to thirty second holds in our warm ups. We'll do that. And then for, you know, for a lot of our athletes, um, they get reintroduced to our programs and some of my college teams, kind of our first phase will be kind of a tissue adaptation phase where we'll do some uh, longer duration isometrics. So usually I'm, you know, down to about 60 seconds to two minutes on split squat, squat, uh, you know, a push up um, and the inverted row. So those are things that we'll do early on, maybe more the general prep phase and tissue ad- adaptation phase. Um, but we, I still do like it. I think it really teaches a really good job of teaching position um, and, and doing some nice things at the tissue level for our athletes to be prepared for more of the higher intensity stuff later on. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I know uh, Jim Snyder is up in your neck of the woods, too. I've heard him talk about that a little bit at Jay uh, DeMeo's seminar. Have you, uh, has his work or talk on that impacted you at all? I've heard him speak. I, I've never spoke to him personally. He's a guy that I'd love to go over to Madison and, and, and pick his brain a little bit. I did have a buddy. Um, who interned for him. And so we've talked about a lot of the things that he's done. Uh, but yeah, he does that a lot with his hockey players in terms of cementing positions. And one thing that he, I, I believe that the, my buddy said that he does is he really does things that kind of reverse some of the postures that are prevalent in hockey. So the very flex at the hip, flex at the you know, rounded forward, the shoulders. So a lot of his uh, longer term, longer duration isometrics are to combat some of the poor postures that hockey puts on his athletes. So you know, kind of an interesting concept there to kind of pull our athletes away from some of the maybe dysfunctions that sport builds. So um, something that I thought was really interesting, but he's a guy I do need to go over there mass and talk to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, between him, I would say him and then uh, some of like the people in the Bay Area here who like have worked with Jay Strader have been impacted by him. I've I brought that stuff back pretty hard, pretty decently into into my programs in the last few years. I either warm up or even like cool downs and, and just building up to maybe two or three minutes and it's been really impactful. I mean, I, I love that stuff. I, it's funny the first time I heard like, you know, you hear like five minutes and you're just like, no way. Like, I mean, it just kind of, I think it puts you in a little bit of a the defensive mode against the whole thing. But I think once you're in, uh, 
volumes and times that your athletes are going to be shaking like a leaf and, and like putting oh, their hands on their leg for it. it becomes a little more manageable and, and realistic. I remember as an athlete, that, that was the worst training that I've ever done was those five minute holes. <laughs> I, you know, I think when I was in college, I, you know, a couple of weeks in the summer, I'd always do that. And it, you literally just dread a five minute split squat hole. just like the worst <laughs> thing in the world. And like, I used to put it, um, again, as a cool down. Cause I think it's, I think it's a superior to a static stretching. Just because you're under contraction, you're, you're working a, you know, a lot of different um, adaptations that static stretching doesn't do. So I would implement those at the end of all of our sessions. Um, sometimes with the way our facility runs, sometimes compliance at the end was always not the, the greatest to get our athletes to, to do them, oftentimes when we're not looking. So um, we've, they've kind of dropped out or fizzled out of our, our post-workout um, aspects. But I, I, like I said, I, I love what they do, um, and we still use them in certain areas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, at the end of the workout, it's money. Even is it's because it's better than stretching. It's kind of like thinking of you got the fascia and the muscle kind of on that same tune rather than just cranking on the connective tissue in a static stretch or something like that. It's active. It's it. Yeah, I, I love it. So that's that's cool stuff, man. Yes, absolutely. Uh, cool. Well, hey. Uh, all right. So uh, enough with the ISOs. Great topic, by the way. But I don't want to rabbit trail uh, from our <laughs> kind of main line here, which I I tend to do sometimes. But uh, so. You've done football, track, you know, you've done tons of work in the world of speed and, and then just your information in the agility episode we did was really awesome just to listen to and think and process. And you hear people talk about this a lot, like linear speed and, and sports speed. And so I know this is a really complex question as is sport, but uh, maybe we can make it as simple as possible. But uh, what facets of linear speed uh, filter into sports speed? Uh, and if so, what aspects? Or I guess maybe you could say, like, what's that minimal time you need to run to be good at your sport? Or if you're really fast, what aspects can filter into sport movement? Uh, could you get into, and shoot, that question could probably be the whole episode. But uh, I'm excited to see what you have to hear on that or say on that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, linear speed plays a huge role in, in just about all team sports. And you know, depending on the team sport, you know, it depends on how, you know, much uh, distance will be covered during a lot of acceleration or max velocity running. But um, basically, you know, in all sports, eventually a movement will get to linear speed. And so obviously it's, it's very, very important. You know, I think I think it is important for our athletes. If you ask all the athletes in our facility is to have a, a basic understanding and grasp of acceleration mechanics and top end mechanics for them to ha have kind of the pieces of the puzzle in their brain and in place to understand those concepts so they can apply them. And so, I, I, you know, I think do, having a track background or, or giving some more of a, a track and field type of concepts to our athletes is, is important. So teach them how to project, teaching them, you know, uh, postures and angles and how to, you know, negatively foot strike back behind your center of mass. I think all those things are important. And I think team sports would be benefit from taking some of those concepts from track and field and applying them. Now, where they different is, you know, differ is that, you know, in team sport, acceleration patterns and max velocity patterns will differ than track and field. Um, guys are, you know, getting chased by someone. They might have an implement in their hand. They might take two steps and be worried about someone trying to knock their head off. So obviously we can't take all the same concepts from track and field and apply them into a sports setting because there's vast differences. You know, in football, we, you know, sometimes exhibiting ultra high frontside mechanics or foot lift is a negative aspect because you want your feet kind of closer to the ground because you never know what's going to happen in front of you to put that foot in the ground and make a change of direction or make a cut. Um, so sometimes having really, really good track and field mechanics 
can be a detrimental to team sport athletes because of the nature of the sport. Um, another thing that's you know important is understanding that in team sports is that transitional speed is huge. So oftentimes in many sports is that an athlete is either walking or jogging or shuffling or whatever, and then they have to react into a sprint. So it's not this 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 pretty two-point or three-point static start, which a lot of people practice. Uh, the mechanics and the, the thought process from an athlete standpoint is different from a static position compared to a transitional start. So when you're walking or jogging or shuffling or wherever it may be and then having to turn the jets and accelerate, that's going to be a different skill set than just a static start. And so we have to understand that bringing speed from a track and field perspective into the context of team sport is really important. So trying to apply linear speed with a stimulus, trying to apply linear speed with some sort of transitional uh, um, transition into a sprint is really important. And trying to bring those aspects into your speed work, I think, is really, really important. But I do think that team sports should prioritize speed and really emphasize speed and agility as their, their main components of their training and have the weight room as an accessory not the other way around. And that's kind of the, where the strength and conditioning field lives is the weight room is the priority and our speed stuff is an accessory. And I think we need to reverse that to really become, uh, develop better movers that are more powerful, faster, better on-field uh, reactors, have better perceptual cognitive skills, et cetera. But uh, at the end of the day, for team sport athletes, we have to take some of the concepts from track and field and apply it in, in a perceptual cognitive aspect that is specific to our sport yeah i i agree i i think that it's interesting too i and i want to hear your opinion on this but like talking about like people who say the nfl uh the combine has no bearing on how well you will perform I and mean, people say like you know tom brady or or whatever i mean but obviously there's a certain level of speed that you need just to get in the game and uh so like what's your take on on kind of that that base level that you that you need like and what's your thoughts too on like you know the guy that runs i guess four three and doesn't get to play or, or that just that whole um just that whole school of thought yeah that, and that's really interesting I, I obviously think there's a lot of gray area in that there is obviously a, a standard or you know a, a certain level of speed that certain positions or certain sports athletes need to be able to exhibit so you're not gonna hit not ever gonna see a five two forty guy playing wide receiver in, in college or the NFL. It's just, there's got to be a baseline of speed. What that level is, I, I'm not so sure, you know? Um, and again, it comes down to how can you transfer that speed into the actual context of the sport that's really, really important. You know, Jerry Rice was, I think, known for running a 4.8 or 4.84, whatever it may be, but he played incredibly fast because he was so in tune to his perceptual cognitive aspects of the sport. Yet you get guys that run 4.3 and they don't stand out on the field um, because of maybe running with an implement or the fear that you have to run and you never know if someone's going to collision you or collide you. So they don't have really good uh, perceptual ability to take that speed and apply it in the context of sports. So is there a cutoff time? I, I know um, obviously certain positions you, you have to have a baseline of speed in order to play. But um, what I think it all comes back to is integrating that speed into the context of the sport. And so getting our athletes not just to be comfortable running in a straight line where we're safe and comfortable, but having our athletes be able to exhibit a lot of these mechanics, a lot of these rhythms and timings and projections um, into the context of what will happen in a sport. Because uh, that's where the money is. And some of these fastest athletes that you 
see in the NFL, they obviously exhibit uh, speed outside of that context. They, they probably ran a fast 40 in the combine, but there's many athletes that are also really, really successful that didn't run a fast 40 because they understand some of those other concepts such as perception, uh, cognitive decision-making, uh, understanding you know, uh, game planning, understanding uh, defensive positioning, et cetera. So those things really are really, really important as well. And I think coaches, maybe we don't, aren't quite in tune to, to working on those things because it's not as easy for us to, uh, to grasp or easier for us to kind of see improvement like you can, can in a weight room or can in a 40-yard dash. We can see improvement black and white. Improving someone's perceptual cognitive abilities is a lot greater of an area. Um, and so it's sometimes hard for us to see, you know, that improvement that we're working on. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, well said. I One thing I was just thinking about as you were talking about that was, uh, and you mentioned Jerry Rice and how his uh, perceptual and cognitive ability allowed him to play faster than what he ran in the combine. And uh, although this guy ran way faster than Rice in the combine, but Leonard Fournette ran a decent time. It was 4.51 or 4.49. It was pretty good. But compared to some of the guys who ran like 4.3s, like he... There was that that story where he ran the fastest time of the week, like of all the players, like period. He ran like 22 miles an hour. And it makes me kind of wonder, like, are some of these guys just overthinking that 40 when they get on the line? Like, or maybe they were coached like the wrong way or something. And then they get in the field and they actually can self-organize the way their body meant to meant to. And they're they're very amped up by play and they just move differently on the field. Uh, That was something that I was kind of thinking about and turning in my head. Yeah, you make a really good point because I think some of that paralysis by analysis, I think, can be very evidence at an NFL combine. You know, all these guys have six to eight weeks postseason that they're prepping and preparing for the combine. And um, I think sometimes coaches, we might try to pigeonhole that athlete into a certain start position or a certain mechanical model that we want them to follow. And in six to eight weeks, it's just really a short amount of time for these athletes to really I think really truly gain confidence and understanding of those principles. And, you know, obviously the NFL combine is the most pressureful moment, the most pressureful job interview that these athletes will ever undergo. And so you get to see maybe these athletes are just pressing a little too much. And, you know, when in the context of sport, whether they're chasing somebody or getting chased, they just let things naturally arise. And like you said, they kind of um, just fall into their, normal mechanics rather than trying to press these certain technical models that they're trying to work on kind of at the NFL combine. And like you said, I mean, a 40 yard straight line speed, you're talking football. That is a lot different than the speed that's required to be successful in football, which we know is very, very chaotic. It's very, very unknown from play to play. Um, and it's every step, there's an unexpected object in front of you that you have to deal with. And so if you cannot deal with those problems, um, you know, no matter how fast your 40 yard time is, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, uh, I like how you mentioned it's a, the most important job interview. I, I also kind of get the, the idea sometimes every time it's uh kind of combine season, I think it's kind of cool for, uh, the scholastic football coaches. You, it's like they get to put their track and field hats on for, for a few yeah. months. And, and I, I mean, I think that's, I mean, it's regardless of the exact transfer, I do think it's a gray area, you know, like any sort of reductionist stance, I think is kind of, you know, any, it's, it's like you said, it's definitely more gray, but you know, at the end of it all, even, 
it's it's I think it's just awesome for coaches to be able to focus on pure movement, you know, and that's it's a blessing for coaches, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, and like you said, we you know, I think the one of the worst things you can do is sometimes if you have a short window is to try to change everything about an athlete and try to change this mechanics or this technique, et cetera, because you know that that window of adaptation is just too short for them to really truly you know hold on to that technique and you know and unfortunately the way football is is that the 40 yard dash is king and, and if you're a skill guy especially you're going to be evaluated on how fast you're on the 40 um but at the end of the day i think the goal would be for sport coaches would be to yes let's improve on-field performance and on-field movement that you know is transferable to the sport and so even if a guy runs a really really fast 40 you know, the field work at NFL Combine or the field work when you get into a camp or for a team is the most important thing. You know, you walk in the fall camp, no one remembers what 40 you run. You got a six-year veteran. I mean, they're, I guarantee you, two, three, ten slower than they were when they ran that 40 when they come out of college. So the most important thing is on-field movement and athletes being um, really, really in tune to the perceptual demands of the sport and be able to solve a lot of the movement problems that are, are presented within the sport. And that is something that you're not going to learn prepping for a 40 yard dash. That's something that takes you know months and years and years of, of really uh, intense work and study for an athlete to improve upon. Yeah. And so you mentioning sports speed, I do think it was really interesting what you said there about losing, you know, six year veteran being two, three tenths slower than that original 40, but their, their uh, ability to perceive the game, obviously improving as the years go on and you mentioned back a little bit ago about transitional speed uh i'm really interested in that could you go into a little bit about how do you how do you work that how do you train that what are some of the ways to transition i think maybe lee taff might call it like a linking movement or maybe that was in game speed i don't know (laughs) it's uh not the area i'm always constantly reading so i might be a little bit off in my terms but what are some of the transitions or links that you like to see or train and how, how do you approach that yeah, there, there's multiple ways to approach it. Um, you can actually, you know, a lot of our speed sessions will actually try to to work on that. And so instead of having working acceleration from, a, you know, a static two point, which is pretty normal for a lot of people, is we'll have our athletes either doing some sort of movement that precedes our acceleration. And so the the ways that we try to contextualize it to sport is one, we'll have that the preceding movement, and then we always try to have that athlete, when they go from that jog or say a shuffle or a back pedal or a walk, whatever it may be, into the acceleration, to have it be initiated by them uh, by a stimulus. So whether it be another athlete, whether it be uh, um, some sort of a cue from the coach, but we want them to uh, you know, have that action be initiated by some sort of perception and stimulus that is relevant to that athlete. So for example, you know, We'll have maybe two athletes facing each other. We're going to shuffle one athlete's offense, one athlete's defense. So they're doing a slow shuffle. One one athlete turns to a sprint, so is the other athlete. So that's kind of a you know a really watered down version where we're getting a transitional workout. So from going from a, a frontal movement to a sagittal plane, obviously. So shuffle lateral to linear, and they're also perceiving it off an athlete. So they're getting that specific stimulus that will happen in sport. Um, and obviously, you can let your imagination run wild on that. There, there's a lot of ways to do it um, and a lot of different movements that you can kind of build into it. But that's one way we'll do it is actually just applying it within that sort of a drill set right there. Another way to do it is just uh, you know doing it in maybe different small-sided games or kind of more open-based um, uh, um, 
games, if you would. So a small side game, there'll be many opportunities for an athlete to, again, they're, they're mirroring somebody, they're jogging and whatnot. They see a ball loose, they see an athlete move, and they'll accelerate from that transition into another position. Or if you have more space, we'll do it just, you know, random games with some sort of objective that it, a transitional movement will naturally occur because of the because of how I set up the game. So basically because of the environment that I set up, there's going to be transitional moments of, of speed applied within that game because of, of how you set up the, the task or that, that, that game there. So um, I, there's a lot more areas or transitions into linear speed that occur in a game than there are speed from a, a static start. And so I think as coaches, we should really work to uh, expose our athletes to some of these transitional speed, transitional movements or linking movements, I think you said Lee Taft calls it, rather than just getting comfortable in these static starts because that really doesn't apply a whole lot in sport other than maybe a receiver um, that you're in a static position into a linear sprint. So these linking or transitional movements are really, really important for our coaches to to work on. Oh, yeah. I That's, that's great stuff, man. I mean, I think uh... – just linking that between sports speed and what you're trying to accomplish uh, with your athletes when training, I, it makes so much sense. I, as you were talking about that, I had a couple thoughts. I'll start with one is uh, kind of like the idea of we want to quantify everything, right? And we want to coach everything. Like, you know, put your leg here and, and, and you ran this time. And sport is obviously very hard to quantify. I mean, obviously now we have GPS and we can say how fast players ran. But how do you, uh, I mean, is there a way that we can kind of systematize and assess this in any manner? Like, you know, you did frontal plane to linear or transverse or rotational to linear. Is there any sort of like assessment process or like way to funnel athletes into things they might need to work on or ways to correct that? That's probably another question that could be a whole episode. I'm sorry, I just like unloaded one, I feel like. But what, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, the way we set it up and I think the best way to quantify some of that stuff is is the environment that we set up is that there's going to be a situation where there's going to be a winner and a loser, where there's athletes going to be more successful and their strategy that they used will work versus it won't work. And so I think, you know, like you said, coaches, we want to quantify everything. We want to have a time. We want to have a, a spreadsheet where you're here, but we need you here. But in a lot of these on-field movements, they are so complex um, that it's just, you, you can't quantify it. And so the one thing that I really, really like in some, in terms of always trying to push our athletes into an environment where it's open and reactive and they're, they're dealing with a specific stimulus and another athlete with, um, is that every rep is a learning opportunity. So every rep in itself can be kind of a, a learning aspect for the coach and the athlete in terms of are they reacting to the stimulus appropriately or are they getting beat? Where are your eyes at? Where are, the, you know, where, where are your feet at? What were you thinking all those things that I think are, are great opportunities for coaches to commit, maybe not you know justify or have an understanding of where prog progression is going. Um, you should see athletes hopefully improve in terms of how they are uh, perceiving different stimuluses and reactions, and they should be putting themselves in better positions. So for me, it's it's not as much of you know quantifying a time or they're poor in this movement compared to that movement. We want to put them in an environment where they're exposed to all those different movements. And then every time they are exposed to a movement, they get a, a, a learning outcome or they get there's – there's an outcome. They did well or they didn't do well. They got in a good position. They got they were out of position. All those opportunities are, at, are, are opportunities for coaches and athletes to give feedback or for them to just learn about 
um, what they did well or wrong, and then make adjustments for the next rep. And that's sport. You know, on field, in the game, we can't be there holding their hand. We're not there to tell them, well, you, you were running 21 miles per hour here. It's for the athlete to be able to um, self you know, organize or self-question themselves and make adjustments on the fly without a coach holding their hand. And so that's where some of these more open drills, and they can be applied to linear speed as well, are very, very important. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, that's really well said. I, I like, uh, it's like there is a result. It's just, did you win or lose? Or and then you linked it to sport there. It's like, did you did you make the play or did you not make the play? And if you didn't, you have to be, the, the onus is kind of on you to learn and figure it out what was wrong. Yeah, if you have a coach holding your hand, it, uh, it, it does on the, looking at it from the quantitative or let's see, yeah, quantitative side, uh, it does make me think a little bit about uh, Tony Holler talking about 10 meter flies, which is obviously timed and register. But he said one of the things he liked about that was he could see athletes on their own kind of trying to figure something out to try every time they did something really simple, like, you know, and, and that's the type of learning that sticks more. I think at least looking at like Franz Bosch has kind of told us compared to, like you said, sitting and holding someone's hand saying, okay, now, now put, you know, do this and do that. Uh, so it makes uh, sense to me in that regard. Yeah. And that's come back to like in the research, they call it knowledge of results versus knowledge of performance. And so giving athletes just, you know, if you're doing flying tens, giving them just their time rather than trying to throw out, uh, you know, a hundred cues at them, just giving them their time allows them to allows them the feedback to know if what, whatever they're working on was productive or not. And so each rep, just them you giving them the time, um, has been shown through the research to be more productive than us trying to give them actual feedback or cueing after every single rep. Just giving them the results and having them um, interpret those results and what their thought processes were in, during that rep is much more productive than us trying to coach every single rep. Yeah, I like what you said about the thought process too. It brings me back a few episodes to um, uh, the one with with Nick Davis uh, talking about not just like cueing, but but yeah, like you said, like saying what were you thinking, and that's something that when he has said that, like I had never used that uh, in my own coaching process, and when he said it, it made all the sense in the world. And I was like, I need to start doing that, and then you just said, I'm like, no, I definitely need to start doing that. You know, like I don't think we. It's like it's like as coaches so often we we just look at ourselves and like it's us and our cues and our system and we don't we don't put anything into the athlete and so I, I like what you said there. Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a double edged sword because one thing let's say an athlete has a really really good performance or does something we like and you say you know what were you thinking there? If they give you a feedback, what's beautiful about that is that sometimes you know say an athlete runs a fly ten or a, a, a ten yard dash and they run like a a, a PR they they, they you drop the time significantly. You go, what are you thinking there? And maybe they'll say, I thought I thought about running on hot coals, or I thought about, you know, getting my thighs high, whatever it may be. What's beautiful about that is that you know, you have that information and you can like hold on to that. And you can give them that thought process and throw back that cue at them during times of stress and anxiety or you know later on in certain training sessions where you see them struggling, throw back that cue to them because obviously that cue connects in their brain and was very, very successful. So that is, it's really, really nice about that is if you have an athlete that had a certain thought process and was successful, we know that that thought process will probably be successful for them down the road and especially under stressful and anxiety ridden, you know, uh, situations. Now the, the bad side might be is, you know, a lot of times what you, you know, you'll see, you know, one of the things you just talk about 
say golfers and whatnot, is the easiest way to screw up, screw up a golfer or maybe a guy shooting a basketball is to make them aware of some sort of internal technique that they're using. Because basically, we again, we, we paralyze them by analysis. So the other edge of the sword is we oftentimes don't want to, I don't think, want to dig too deep in what they're thinking and that they, they start to becoming, you know, internally you know, looking at themselves and thinking about every single movement because we basically are constraining the, the natural movement system by trying to dig too deep into what they were thinking. So I think it's a fine edge sword, but I do want to know a thought process from an athlete and hopefully have they have a game plan going into each repetition or each uh, a drill because you need that in sport. Yeah, yeah. Maybe something to ask them like after the, the, the session or after the competition. Uh, I, I remember what you were saying there. Uh, it was like the inner game of tennis. It was like how to win in tennis just when your opponent's playing well, say, Man, that's a good shot. Like, how did you do that? <laughs> and, exactly, yeah. and then, and then they'll just start overthinking it. I, I love that, man. I, and so, uh, next question, kind of follow up. I, I don't think we got to this specifically in the agility episode we did, the roundtable. Uh, but the idea of like you, you talked about like transitional speed and, and uh, I, I think that, and I think you had talked about this on one of the podcasts you had done. But like technique and agility, like. And this is something that always confused me, even when I was back in like you know grad school and, and learning about strength and conditioning, I guess. And 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 we were learning about the right agility technique. And I just remember always feeling so awkward whenever I tried to. I mean, I was just like, I just want to run. I just want to get point A to point B. And and anyways, what uh, so is there anything? I mean, you had you had made some mention of maybe like where like like head position or, or is there any like attractors or like main focal points that will help an athlete in any of those situations? Or is it best to just let them run? Like, how do you approach that? How do you fine tune that process? Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to technique for, for kind of a, a multi for movement, I, I kind of leave that to the athlete, you know, technique of a movement will be dictated upon when, where, why, and how an athlete perceives information. And so for this reason, you know, it's really unwise to try to decouple a technique from a stimulus because the stimulus will dictate, a, a, you know, the, the technique. Um, and I actually heard a, I think it was a soccer coach from Europe say this, that when he's working with his athletes, what he teaches first is decision-making. So he teaches decision-making and perception before technique. So the process of learning a technique cannot interfere with the perception. And basically here, we, you know, we do it backwards. We work a technique and a movement without a perception and think that somehow when that perception is present, that somehow that technique will hold up. And it really isn't the case. And, you know, literature after literature after literature has shown that that doesn't work. Um, so, you know, we need to um, basically deal with per perception and decision-making um, and then build that into certain techniques, if that, if that makes sense. So we should emphasize perception and build technique into the athlete's perception. And that's the best way to actually have that technique stick, be, you know, transfer to the sport, um, and have the athlete retain it under stress and chaos. Yeah, that, that makes good sense. As you were saying that, I was even thinking about even getting away from the world of team sport just into like track and field or swimming some of the best coaches and best minds that I've uh, worked with and learned from in those camps, it's like they use 
sensation for for as the grounding for building technique and like sprinting or swimming like feel this here or like or adjusting uh, I know like a Darien bar adjusting the footwear so you get a different sensory output from the foot and that's what's going to steer your technique or allow your body to self-organize the right technique or a better form or stuff like that I mean I it's something that I'm starting to see more often from coaches who are really experienced really read into motor learning and uh it, whether whether it's the the sensory output of I guess running straight ahead or or a reacting opponent I think there's definitely some similarities there yeah and you know some of our track athletes what we try to do is you know and this is what I you know and I backtrack a second here so you, you're obviously you know well versed in track and field and have a lot of experience working with track athletes and Anybody that's worked with athletes for track or for speed, you can, uh, you know, uh, understand this: is it takes a lot of work for the technical changes to occur, right? So you can work on technique, technique, and then an athlete gets in a race, and there's they don't quite retain all that you worked on. It 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 takes a lot of time, right, for an athlete to actually exhibit a lot of the mechanics and techniques that you're working on in practice into the actual, you know, context of a race or into a time thing. Um, so what I tell coaches is this, you know, it's hard in the close, it, you know, track and field or sprinting a straight line is very close. It's, it's predictable. You know exactly what you need to do and you need to get it done. And we know that transferring technique in that setting is very, very difficult. So imagine how difficult it is into actual agility or movement where the actual outcome is much more random, much more chaotic, much more open. Do you really think some of those technical drills that you're doing are really going to transfer or the athlete's going to use those techniques in the open environment? Absolutely not. They're not going to use those things. It's, it's not possible. It's hard enough for just a close skill for those things to transfer, let alone an actual crazy environment of agility that is in sport movement. So what we do, going back to your original question, with our track athletes a lot, is I like to put them in situations where there's stress or there's competition um, or there's anxiety because then they'll basically exhibit or they'll revert back to what they want to do as their natural movement strategy. And so we'll have athletes, you know, it seems, you know, I've seen track programs, they never have athletes go against each other in the blocks. It's just, you know, they go up on their own and then they, they exit the blocks or project out the blocks on their own free will rather than having the actual gun or having athletes go against each other. So, Whenever possible for our track and speed athletes, we have them go against each other. And we have them go live on a clap or a gun because that's the con context that's specific to track and field. All of athletes go, their blocks will start back by two yards or two meters, so they're starting behind. That raises anxiety, that raises stress of that athlete, et cetera. So there's certain principles that team sports do that I think can be applied to more of the the closed setting of track and field or closed setting of, of swimming um, where there's not as much chaos or, or openness, but you can apply some of those basic principles of skill acquisition into the track and field or, tr or, or swimming um, environment, I think, to make our athletes more adaptable, more dexterity in those actual chaotic and stressful environments of competition. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh yeah, I I would kind of wonder um, saying that like what what would have Leonard Fournette have ran in that forty if maybe some people would have been chasing him like you know maybe he would have ran a four four or whatever low four four maybe his yeah. mechanics would have got better and and but obviously a lot of people would do worse like the reason that you're doing that to to see what people are truly doing and like 
yeah, I mean, I I would totally agree. Like to see what an athlete is really gonna do, you you have to do that in practice because otherwise you you have to wait till they actually are in competition. You have to you know kind of yeah. then go back and run it back and be like, okay, now well, there's the worst thing you can do as a coach is have competition be the first time that an athlete is experiencing some sort of that task or environment. That's the that's the worst thing because they're gonna they're gonna choke. So apply some of those principles of competition within practice because if an athlete steps up to the the track meet or whatever it may be. And it's the first time of them going actual off an actual live gun with competitors to their left and right. Of course, they're gonna not gonna do very well because it's their first time exposed to that really stressful environment. So, trying to apply some of those principles within sport or within practice, excuse me, and doing it a little bit more fre- frequently allows athletes to be more comfortable with that and allows them to now we can push some of those mechanical and technical uh, skills. I think will become more ingrained because they get more repetitions at it under stress and under chaos. Yeah, I, I totally agree, man. I, I Back to what you were saying before, too, I was thinking about this is you were saying decoupling, when you decouple the the sensation from the technique or the sensory stimulus from the technique, like I was kind of thinking, yeah, like what athlete ever has been playing a game and thinking and trying to change direction or keeping up with the opponent and thinking, okay, coach said do this, coach said do that, like, you would never like never like you would never get that and then um what was it like i almost feel like there should be like a like a thing like if you coached an athlete away from a stimulus and coach them some change of direction technique or something with no stimulus and you have before and after pictures of them in a game and they fixed it and made it actually corrected it then send it in or post it or something like i mean i would that would be like right if that actually did do anything it would be a rare if, if ever happened. And so someone should actually like, where's the write up on that, you know, cause in track and field, you yeah. see it all the time. Your technique was this, we changed this and now you're doing better, but no, you never see that in agility cause it doesn't happen. No. And we do the opposite. We see, we take, we see a still frame photo of uh, a Barry Sanders or somebody doing a, a, a move or a cut in a game. We see this posture and positioning and we say, all right, we need to practice that in our practice. But what they don't understand is that, the reason they, they went to that movement solution is because they perceived something in the environment that made them do that. And just because it worked for Barry Sanders or it worked for whatever athlete doesn't mean that same strategy will work for any athlete. Every athlete's going to approach the same problem or the same stimulus, and they're going to react to it differently based on um, their strengths, based on how they what, what their natural movement tendencies are, etc. So we can't say that there's a correct movement for every athlete that a D back needs to do this drop pivot step. Well, you know, for some athletes that might be good or other athletes, that's not going to work for them. But we've got to understand at the end of the day that whatever movements that they do, it has to be specific or has to be in response to some sort of stimulus. Cause if it's not, then there's no way that that movement is going to connect to the sport. Cause like you said, you're not going hundred miles per hour in a sport and think, well, my coach said I got to have my foot at a 90 degree angle. I gotta have my nose over my toes. I gotta, I gotta jab my elbow back. No, the the, the, the movement, the, the sport moves so so fast that all these things are basically reacting, and so we got always have to have that stimulus present to to basically bridge that gap. And if we don't, then you know it's it's all for naught, if you ask me. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. I, I I like that. I just like how you put that, and it, it definitely makes sense with. Uh, how athletes are actually going to react and move on the field. And uh, I have this question for later on, but I actually think it fits really well right now. But so ever since the last podcast uh, and some of the things that Sean and Scott were saying, have you 
Has your standpoint or anything you have been doing with your athletes in the realm of change of direction, agility, uh, and sport movement, uh, have you been doing anything differently or, or seeing anything differently since then? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, yes, there's, there definitely are things. And so maybe not necessarily um, specific to our movement practice, but in, in totality of how I approach the training process. And so I'm trying, I'm trying to find ways to continue to add pressure anxiety to athletes because when you do that, I think you really review, reveal excuse me, movement dysfunction. And so a lot of times there's certain aspects or certain ways that I'm trying to um, add pressure and anxiety to training so athletes um, will be more resilient in competition. And this can be as simple as so something that we, we started to do is that before every training session, I pull an athlete out. And I make them introduce themselves to the group. So we could have ten athletes, and you know, these are high school kids or college kids, and you know, that's a you know, that's a stressful situation for the kid to say, introduce themselves, what grade they are in, what school they go to, what sports they play. I'll ask them, what would you have for breakfast, etc. Um, just public speaking or being in front of a group, you know, is a, in a very high stress for an athlete. And what's interesting, you put that athlete back in the group. You watch how they move or how they act for the rest of the day. It's really, really unique, and it gives you, as a coach, a ton of information of, of um, how that athlete's moving, um, just by letting, the, by putting the pressure and stress on them by public speaking. It's a really unique thing to do. Something that I've really enjoyed doing, um, and you'll see a change in the movement behavior of the athlete after that moment. Uh, other things I'm doing, you know, um, I'm speaking at Sean's clinic up in Minneapolis in April. Um, and that clinic, I think, is going to be, I mean, amazing. He, he, he's putting together an incredible lineup. But one thing I'm going to speak on is, is ways that I'm trying to take a lot of these motor learning and skill acquisition principles and apply them more frequently into the training. And so now our warm-up involves a lot of reactive components. So instead of going to warm-up, it's just general, you know, increased blood flow, prepare tissues for, the, you know, the, the training day. We're doing a lot of perceptual cognitive things during our warm-up to really get our athletes additional repetitions and really get them more in tuned um, to, you know, being able to perceive specific stimuli from an from an athlete's body. So really getting in tune to hip levels, getting their eyes in the right location, et cetera. And for us, it adds a lot of repetitions to our athletes um, that they don't they don't normally get. And so we've been doing a lot of things adding our into our warm-up. Our warp is very, very reactive now. It's very, very open. Um, and it's really increased engagement during our warp as well. So it's not just a general, you know, increased, you know, flexibility or, you know, go through these mobility drills, go through these A-skipping things. We're, we're finding ways to make a lot of those same concepts but make them more open and reactive. Um, so those are two things that um, we're doing a lot more of. Um, and also for me, just trying to find ways to uh, – make all of our, our drills or our movements um, initiated by some sort of human stimulus. So I'm always trying to now push the envelope in terms of um, trying to make our movements as, as representative as possible. So always trying to get our athletes paired up, always trying to initiate different movements um, or skill sets um, by a stimulus rather than just on a whistle, rather than just um, on their own, et cetera. So trying to increase the total number of repetitions our get our athletes get through a, a you know a typical session with a stimulus. Oh, I love it, man. I I couldn't agree more with some of the warm up and the engagement. Um, 
I one thing I did uh, with well, I do it with tennis, like when I know that they're not going to play for a while because I'm like kind of hypersensitive about someone, you know, like knocking knees or something. But like I'll say I'll pair them off and say have them just play a game where they have to step on the other guy's foot or something. And then, of course, I freak out the whole time. Someone's going to hurt themselves. But like <laughs> the, the engagement just goes through the roof. I, I mean, I, I always felt like that prepared them really well. So I, you know, the more I can refine and find ways that people aren't going to like destroy themselves on my end i'm sure you have probably better better ideas than i do but what or actually i was gonna ask you like, what are some of the things that that you put in in that warm-up situation like a couple of specific examples uh of, of like a cognitive enhancement that gets them uh, focused and ready to go yeah and so you know you think about so we we break up our days our movement wise into linear ladder laser you know we try to integrate them as much as possible but we do have kind of a an emphasis on each day and so you're, you're thinking about like a, maybe a, a multi-directional day or a lateral day. You know, a typical coach will go through some sort of shuffle, maybe a crossover step, maybe some karaoke, different kind of things like that during the warm-up, lateral lunges, et cetera. We do those same things, but now we do all of those dictated off a partner. So if we're going to do some sort of low-level shuffle movement, it's all going to be dictated off a partner. So you're basically mirroring a partner doing that. Um, so it's very low speed, low intensity. But we're getting our athletes in tuned to, you know, from from the start of our session that we are going to be, uh, you know, keying in on key kinematic positions of our athletes because those repetitions build up over time. Um, for some of our other things, we might do like a drop squat or a drop lateral lunge. Again, where we're looking at our athlete, and so it's hard to explain, you know, without video. But um, say two athletes are facing each other, and what I'll do, we'll bounce. So we're getting some foot stiffness type stuff. So we're bouncing, 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 and I'll drop down into a, a lunge and stick. So not only are we getting some foot stiffness with the bouncings, now we're getting some force absorption into that drop lunge. But if I drop with my right leg forward, the athlete, my partner facing me has to drop down with their right leg forward. But when you look at us from front to front, it's actually opposite. My right leg is on the left side of the partner I'm facing, right? So now they got to – because the tendencies for them, if I drop down right leg, They'll do their left leg because it's, it's the same side. So now they're, they're, they're thinking about it cognitively. We're getting some good force absorption qualities. Um, and it all came, you know, I think last week, you know, our college athletes are going through this. And one of the kids goes, you know, at the end of it, he goes, that was a, that was a brain warm-up as well. So I knew at that moment, all right, we got something here. Because he's like, not only is it a physical warm-up, but my, it was a brain warm-up. I actually <laughs> had to think and be present and be aware and all that kind of stuff. And at that moment, I knew it was like, all right, we got something here that – I think is, is valuable. Um, and it's, I think it's, it's a good start for us and something that we've been uh, playing around with. I, I love that. Like uh, just that, I, I, I feel like those types of warmups too, not only is it tune you into reactivity, but I feel like you come out of those like jumping higher and running faster. Cause like all systems are on board, you know, it's not just like there's like dopamine that's flowing and uh, I'll put, I'll I have to get that from you a video if you haven't on put in the show notes because that stuff sounds awesome. I'm gonna start doing that right away. I feel like there's so many ideas that you could get, like yeah, like dropping into a lateral lunge. It's almost like the old like Jay Schrader in a sport force absorption stuff, but now it's on a reaction. How cool is that? I, I really like that example. Yeah, yeah, it, and that's what it is. And so, it, you know, when I went through our warm up and think about you know key qualities that I like to hit during a warm up, obviously force absorption was one of them. And here's a way to, to do it in a, in a reactive environment and whatnot. Um, and there's actually a really cool research study that I just read. You know, it was why professional athletes need, um, what was it, a prolonged period of warm-up and other peculiarities of human motor learning. 
So it was, it was a really interesting uh, research study. But basically what they found was that the warmth for high-level athletes needs to be seen more as um, more than just the general warmth. It needs to be seen rather than just raising body temperature and preparing tissues and increasing the CNS. The warm-up for you know higher-level athletes needs to be seen as a chance to recalibrate fine motor skills. And so I thought about that in, in terms of implementing to our warm-up as, as a way to, like I said, recalibrate or calibrate our athletes into their perceptions into these, you know, specific motor qualities rather than just this general thing that, you know, most warmups consist of. Um, and like you said, you know, I, like I said, I go, if we have an odd number, I'm always going through it with our athletes. So I'm paired up with somebody and I tell you what I do, you know, that 10 minute warm up, and I'm freaking beat. I'm sweating from head to, you know, um, it's one of those things where going through it, you know, two, three times a day, it's one of those things that I, I see a huge difference in terms of engagement. And also in terms of, like you said, I come out of that warm-up feeling, you know, ready to freaking rock rather than just kind of this general warm-up that we used to do. Yeah, well, hey, that's a good way to stay in shape, being a, you know, being a busy uh, gym owner. I I mean, that that definitely will roll. Uh, I was going to say, too, like, just like you know, mentioned Jay Schrader with the long-duration ISOs, but the idea of, like, the the emotional difference between just doing an exercise for the sake of doing it and having, like, a reason, like an emotional reason, a competitive reason, some sort of strong intent attached to it you get so much more out of it. And I've got almost gotten to the point where I almost hate doing any, like not any, but like for longer than a few minutes, like just run of the mill. Okay. Do some skips, do some toe touches. Like after you do those intentful warmups, it's like, you don't want to go back. You know, it's, I mean, there's, there's just so much more to it. Yeah, absolutely. And that what happens is athletes start getting into this, this, they've done the warm up 2 million times and they just go through the motions. Um, and same thing, I kind of, I talked about a double-edged sword before. This is a topic that I'm not even sure of right now, or, you know, it'd be a good, uh, a topic for discussion amongst coaches. You know, one thing I can see is that having kind of a, a one or two specific warmups that athletes perform every time they're, you know, they're training, it allows coaches to, um, have a baseline or gain a baseline of that athlete's kind of movement variability or their their, you know, the movement bandwidth. So if we're doing the same warm up every day, coaches then can become aware of when an athlete might be outside of their movement bandwidth or aren't moving like they normally do. Um, and then another reason for that athletes or coaches like that having a single warm up um, is that when it comes to competition or a high level competition, when the stress is really high, athletes can always revert back um, to that comfortable warm up where they're, they know what they're doing. Um, it decreases anxiety because it's not something that they are, you know, are questioning. It's just this, this routine that they can kind of get themselves into and get themselves into their groove. So I can see that standpoint having a, a more of a singular warm up that at times can be boring for those reasons. But on the other than the spectrum, I really like having a lot of different warm ups, um, having variability in our warm ups because I think it increases engagement, it increases our athletes' opportunity to you know. Instead of going through this kind of block practice, our warm-up really starts. It's really random. They don't know what they're going to be doing from moment to moment. I think that increases movement variability, increases a, you know more of an adaptable athlete. But I can see some of those arguments on the other end that may be um, against having you know a variety of warm-ups um, with a variety of different um, reactive kind of drills within that warm-up. 
But that's something that I've debated to myself, and I think it would be a good question to you know, propose out to coaches because I think there would be a good discussion on both ends. Oh, I agree. I think that's a roundtable idea right there. I, as you were <laughs> saying, like, yeah, it's like the systems check. Like you hear from like the Altus guys, like the, the systems check aspect and knowing what to look for and, and, uh, and using that as uh, part of your assessment uh, protocol. And I think I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I I'll admit like I'm biased cause I'm a, my genetic test says I'm a high novelty need person. And so of course yeah. I want to do different stuff, you know, like <laughs> it's almost good to be grounded in that way. I, again, I'm glad you mentioned it. Like, like here, here's the routine, you know, here's the routine so I can, you know, do it. And, and that requires your intent as a coach though, you know, like, it's like, if we're going to yeah. do this, there has to be someone who's, <laughs> who's watching and being intentful and mindful of, of what's going on. And, and uh, I mean, hopefully the athletes are bought into it too. They can feel things out through the exercise. But yeah, again, maybe uh, not being a black and white thing, but there's there's good in both. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Michael. Yeah, it's just yeah, it, it's something that you you know you and I maybe it's, it has to do with the the level of athlete that you may be working with. You know, obviously the guys at Altus are working with world class athletes that um, they, they are really need, they need to be really really in tune to how their systems and bodies are working day to day. For me, the you know the high school college age athlete having some more variability or variety in the warm up, maybe I don't need to be quite as in tune to the daily fluctuations of, of their system because their their system isn't isn't quite as you know uh, in, intense as that the, the high level Olympic level athlete is. So it's you know it's a good question, but I, I really have enjoyed um, the engagement. I enjoyed the athletes actually being like you said intentful during the warm up rather than just going through the motions and it's you know for most athletes the warm-up is the worst part of the day every every athlete hates the warm-up and now it's become this thing where athletes are actually enjoying it um they're getting benefit out of it rather than just you know increasing blood flow heart rate etc there's actually some um skill learning and skill acquisition benefit from what we've been doing lately so i, I that's what i like about it yeah oh, i couldn't agree more yeah one of the favorite things i i got this from paul cater because i warming up with him is definitely an awesome experience he has a gym down in monterey and uh it's just like taking like a light medicine ball like four pounds and just chucking it at the other guy or a basketball like something weighs nothing and just chucking it at your partner as hard as you possibly can like that i was like i didn't think i used to not think that like could warm you up like it never crossed my mind but i was like man like this is this is pretty odd. like just getting all the systems online you know i mean that was like what sparked my interest and um yeah i i, I think it's just such a such a cool aspect of, of training athletes from a holistic perspective. So, uh, such a cool topic. I'll have to get a round table going. Uh, I think that would be, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. By the way, Sean's clinic, I, I forgot to say Sean's clinic sounds awesome. I saw that going on Twitter, uh, I'm not getting paid to mention it or anything on my end, but I, I think, man, if I was, if I was in that area, I'd definitely be there. So that sounds really cool. I'm a cool opportunity for you speaking there. And I'm sure everyone going is going to learn a whole lot. Yeah, he, he put together, a, a minus me, a powerhouse of presenters. I mean, it's how he did that. Um, I'm just excited to go as a, as a, as a attendee just to, just to listen to everybody and hopefully pick some brains and be a, just a fly on the wall for most of the time. But uh, um, it's, I'm looking forward to that. Um, Sean does a great, you know, a great job for our community in terms of you know, spreading and raising awareness of some of these, these, these skill acquisition and more learning principles that I think – Sometimes take a backseat to to periodization models and, and lifting techniques, et cetera. When at the end of the day, you know, sport, especially team sport, is about movement. You know, how are these athletes moving on the field and how can we best provide them a training stimulus or training environment that allows them to maximize movement on, on the field? So 
I really appreciate what Sean's done and, and what you do with this podcast, Joe, is, is incredible. So I'm um, looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, man. Hey, I couldn't agree more with what you just said, like the movement over periodization. I've been slowly realizing that myself from my early, you know, periodization nut days and my kind of mid 20s and stuff like that. But I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's awesome. So yeah, hey, I'm uh, out of time for the show today. But yeah, thank you, Michael. Uh, just awesome answers. Uh, what you're doing is just pushing the field forward, especially there in the private sector, how you're addressing everything that you guys are doing. And, uh, and thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Um, like we talked about, you know, beforehand, I don't think a lot of people realize what how much time goes into making a podcast, and especially one with such high quality as yours on a weekly basis. So I just want to thank you for all the time that you set aside and the the unseen work that goes into producing a, a you know a great podcast such as yours. So thank you for that. I know I've taken a ton of nuggets over the years from you and the podcast. So just thank you for all the work that you do for our community. It doesn't go unseen. Um, so thank you, Joe. That does it for another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. We'll be back next week with another great guest. In the meantime, if you like the episode, podcast, this series, what we're doing, don't hesitate to drop us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. I really appreciate it. Also, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. We'll see you guys next week.